0: When the days for his being taken up were fulfilled, he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem. You may have noticed that this is the only lesson in our study of Luke that begins on the inside of a chapter rather than at the beginning of one. That's because verse 51 of chapter 9 represents a very significant development in Luke's Gospel. The plot is thickened, so to speak. Previously, Jesus moved from town to town because he wanted all of Israel to hear the good news of the kingdom of God. When the people of one village would try to keep him from leaving, he would tell them, To the other towns also I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, because for this purpose I have been sent. But from now on, whatever town or village he enters, he will only be passing through. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and nowhere else. Jerusalem is where Jesus will bring to fulfillment his calling and mission as the Messiah. Luke lets us know that his decision to go to Jerusalem is no small matter. It means he is willing to face the ultimate rejection. In Jerusalem, the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. A destiny Jesus not only foresees, but also embraces. It is not that Jesus believes God, the one whom he calls Father, wants his death. Rather, it is because proclaiming the good news of God's love and salvation in Jerusalem is indeed the will of his Father. But preaching it there will mean his arrest and inevitable death. It is an uphill climb to Jerusalem, but that is not what Luke means by saying, the days for his being taken up were fulfilled. Jesus is to be taken up on a cross. You and I have a purpose in life. How dedicated have we made ourselves to it? It probably does not appear so definite or precise to us that we can give it a name and place it on a map like Jerusalem. It is because Jesus went to Jerusalem, however, that we can absolutely trust that we do have a call and a purpose. There was a time when I wanted to hear a loud and clear call from God. I wanted a plan, a map, with a set of directions and a timetable. Of course, I wanted it to be glorious as well. Somewhere along the way to what I hoped was the destination, I discovered that God was calling me to pay attention to the journey. I discovered that I had a rare heart condition, a thickening of the muscle tissue of the heart, and a growing obstruction within the aorta. At first it scared me. Was this the end? The doctors warned me that I would have to slow down in every respect. I was not to run anymore, I would have to walk. But it was on a walk that I became joyously aware that I was alive and breathing and still surrounded by all that I held dear. Did you know you can walk the same path every day, day in and day out, and never see it the same way twice? God stirs in the grasses, God hides in the leaves, I have learned to take a lot of walks with no other purpose than walking, but I've never had to take a walk alone, not even when I'm all by myself. I know that there are many who are trapped in days of numbing routine and that such relentless routine can be an attack on the very life of the soul. On the other hand, I have also learned that I have often been blind to the infinite variety that actually transpires under the surface of many routines. Discovering purpose in life isn't always the same thing as getting a new sense of direction. Sometimes, discovering your purpose is a matter of paying attention, passionate attention, to the life you have. Just so, Jesus, knowing very well where he was going and why, knew God still had something special for him to do every step of the way, all along the way, as he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem. Unfortunately, letting others know his purpose did not make his journey any easier. It is somewhat ironic that it is only Luke who tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan, and yet it is also only in Luke that the apostles want to call fire down on a Samaritan village because they were so inhospitable to Jesus. Why did the Samaritans refuse to welcome Jesus? It is because Jesus, intent on going to Jerusalem, had sent messengers ahead of him, announcing that he would be passing through their village on his way to Jerusalem. This seems like a colossal blunder. It's something like wearing a Yankees cap in Boston and wondering why you can't hail a taxi. But this wasn't a sports rivalry. It was seven centuries of not just deep-seated prejudice between Jews and Samaritans, but spilled blood as well. Jews saw Samaritans as the unfaithful remnant of the old northern kingdom of Israel a remnant that had not just married foreign peoples, but foreign gods as well. The Samaritans saw the Jews as punishing, vindictive people who had destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. From both the book of Acts and the gospel of John, it seems clear that the followers of Jesus made converts in Samaria after the resurrection. But how much contact Jesus himself may have had with Samaritans is not at all clear. Later in Luke, we read of a Samaritan leper that is healed by Jesus. In John, we have the account of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the will. There is also the suggestion in John, at least that at some point, Jesus may have spent fruitful time with some community of Samaritans. But Jesus was not welcome here, and the apostles have nothing but contempt for them. For all the animosity, however, Jesus refuses to let his disciples curse the Samaritans. Within the wider picture Luke is painting, Jesus' refusal is prophetic. Even though Jesus himself has told the apostles, just as he is about to tell the 72 disciples, that they are to shake the dust off their feet in contempt of any village that refuses to receive them, the Samaritans are a different matter. The apostles themselves will be sent to bring the good news to the Samaritans following the resurrection. What we quickly realize as we follow Jesus to Jerusalem is that he does not in fact get there straight away. This does not mean that Jesus was any less determined to get there. Rather, it means that Luke has many things to show us on the way, and what he has to show us is all about following Jesus. As we read this section from the heart of the Gospel, we might want to consider it as an extended meditation on the way of the cross not on the familiar stations of the cross from Catholic tradition, but the way of the cross as the path of discipleship. From this point on in Luke until Jesus actually enters Jerusalem, the reader is asked to be mindful of Jesus' steadfast purpose. Luke uses this opportunity to remind his readers that they are called to be more than just believers. To believe in this Jewish Messiah means that we have heard him call to us, Come, follow me, he says. And are we tempted to ask and reply, Where are you going, Lord? We know the answer, and it makes us uncomfortable. If Luke were just an apologetic work, that is a book intended to defend the reasonableness and goodness of Christian faith, it would make for more comfortable reading. We could come away from it both proud of our Christian identity and full of enthusiasm for believing. Jesus really is who and what we have believed all along. My faith is secure, the one I believe in is trustworthy of my every conviction. But just as soon as we learn of Jesus' determination to meet his own cross in Jerusalem, Luke puts us on the journey with Jesus. As they were proceeding on their journey, the journey of faith we might say, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Following Jesus means going without rest though, and he has no home. Nazareth is now far behind him. Three different someones, three so that we know they are just examples of many, maybe of ourselves, encounter Jesus on his journey and each one believes in him, but Jesus asks more. Jesus wants a follower, a disciple. What a strange way of recruiting disciples, by telling them how tough, how demanding and how uncompromising are the responsibilities. Why would anyone answer it? Luke shows us the reason. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus sends out the 12, just as we have read in Luke. But only in Luke do we read about the mission of the 72. It appears that Luke wants the reader, that is, you and me, to see this as our mission, the mission of the baptized. It is the same mission as the apostles, only it hasn't the notoriety. We are to announce to the world that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's not the end of the world, you know. It's just the end of the world of meaningless suffering. The end of the world held under sway by any sort of evil, whether by premeditation or through neglect. Spiritual evil, oppression, injustice, illness, poverty, you name the evil, the job of the disciple is to rebuke it, to cast it out and to proclaim the dawn of a new order. God is taking over. The old system is out. No, the new order, God's order, is not completely here yet. But the disciples' job is to make it real in their company. When you encounter a disciple, whether then or now, you should have a real, tangible experience of just what it's like to live in a world governed by God. If that sounds dangerously like a revolution, consider its weapons. The disciples carry none. If they bear any threat, it's only in the dust from their sandals. They come with the power of the Spirit, though, and they have their voices, which they employ in the name of Jesus. By living as a follower of Jesus, they provide the world with the opportunity to discover the power of the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand for you if you are so blessed as to encounter the followers of Jesus. It may be very hard to take up the call of discipleship, but if there were six dozen you could join with, share your life with, raise your children with, it might just become a way of life. It might even be a life that could be found in any Catholic parish, in your Catholic parish. First, we must believe, and then we must answer the call to follow Jesus. In more modern times, artists and preachers alike have searched the gospels for a portrait of a happy Jesus. Perhaps it is feared that more traditional portraits and icons only showed us the Jesus who suffers, as if his entire adulthood had been spent either in Gethsemane or on the cross. No happier picture of Jesus could be painted, however, than the Jesus who rejoices in the Holy Spirit when the disciples return with news of their mission. I give you praise, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to the childlike. What more fitting picture could there be of Jesus? He rejoices most fully, most expressly, when his disciples tell him their joy at sharing in his mission of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. At the climax of this moment is also the one passage in Luke that seems to have been unabashedly snipped from the Gospel of John. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. Nothing is more fitting, however, than that this passage should come where it does in Luke. This is the very point of Luke's message about discipleship. The spirit that empowers Jesus' mission is given to Jesus' disciples, and their mission is a continuation and extension of Jesus' own. After he encourages the disciples to rejoice because they have discovered that they are truly children of God, that their names are written in heaven, Jesus rejoices that he has been able to hand on to his disciples what he himself has learned from the Father. And it is all about the ultimate intimacy between Jesus and his Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, an intimacy now freely shared between God and Jesus' disciples. It is this intimacy with God an intimacy that must be shared with others that is the essence of eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is asked. Those who share the special relationship with God that Jesus has been able to give his disciples know that the answer is no different than the one given in the law of Moses. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Because this intimacy with God is at the heart of Jesus' message, Jesus tells Martha that Mary has chosen the better part. He never hints that Martha has not chosen well or that Mary will not have to act on the words she hears later. It is because Mary takes the opportunity to hear what Jesus has to say to the disciples that makes her choice the wiser one. And Luke has just shown us that what Jesus communicates to his disciples is no less than life as a child of God. It may well be for this very reason that Luke places Jesus' teaching on prayer where he does, immediately following these passages that reveal the core of the disciples' life with Christ. Prayer is the disciples' communion with God, just as it is Jesus' own practice at every opportunity. In Luke, a notice that Jesus has been in prayer prefaces every key moment in Jesus' ministry. And while the Lord's Prayer is usually prayed by Christians as Matthew taught it, Luke's version is even more intimate for being more immediate in its address to God. In Luke, it is written as though Jesus himself were praying it on behalf of himself and his disciples. Jesus tells them that because of their relationship with God, all they need do is ask and it will be given. And what does a child of God ask in prayer? To do God's will, of course. May your kingdom come. But the coming of the kingdom is demonstrated by Jesus through the power of the Spirit. And those who are disciples of Christ have one, one real need that only God can grant, the Spirit. And woe to those who reject the Spirit, or who, God forbid, ascribe the work of the Spirit to Bilzebel. The Spirit is what makes us God's children. What hope do you have if you reject the Spirit? To hear Jesus' teaching is to be offered life as a child of God within the family of God, which is a community of disciples, the followers of Jesus. There is no more pointed way for Luke to say that that than through Jesus' response to the woman who blesses his mother. We Catholics are always surprised when a gospel such as Luke suggests that there is a blessing greater than that of being Mary, the mother of Jesus. In Luke chapter 11, verses 27 through 28, we read that a woman from the crowd called out and said to him, Blessed is the womb that carried you and the breasts at which you nursed. Jesus replied, Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. But when we take to heart his words, we understand that it is the greater reason for calling Mary blessed among women. She is the model disciple in Luke. She is the one who pondered these things in her heart from the very beginning. Let's find the courage, step by step, to be followers of Jesus, to ponder his teachings in our heart, and to see how His Word transforms each breath, each step of every day.